0: Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevere, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we celebrate stories of resilience. Our guest today is Rudy Garcia-Tolson, who will blow you away. In terms of resilience, in terms of enthusiasm, in terms, of, I mean, he's here, hopefully qualifying, we'll see, hopefully qualifying for Tokyo. Four time Paralympian, five time medalist, first double amputee, double above the knee amputee to do Kona, uh, to do the, the Ironman in Kona. Rudy, thank you for joining us in the midst of all your training. Can you, you know what? Well, first, welcome. And then we're going to get into what you just did just recently. So welcome. Thanks for joining. Thank you. It's good
1: to be here, Chris. Uh, I think the first time we met, I was probably eight or nine years old. And then uh, I think we were able to uh, share uh, the same Paralympic team back in 2004, which I think was your last game. So um, yeah, when when I was told that, uh, that Chris wanted to chat, I was super excited. So thank
0: you for having me. This is amazing. Yes, you were you were sixteen, and I think I was thirty six, which, yep. uh, which which kind of made sense. So yes, I was on my way out. You were on your way in, going to to world records and gold medals and all of those things, which was you know it was fun to share games and fun. I think in some ways to share Athens as a games too, just because yes. of the history of you know where it all started, where everything began. I mean, not necessarily the Paralympics, but the ideals. So you are, Tokyo became a little bit different for you, right? I mean, the thing is that we hear all these athletes who are saying, well, it changed my training. I was all prepared for 2020, but you, when did you make the decision that you wanted to at least entertain qualifying for 2021? Absolutely. You know, um, this time
1: last year, I was living and working in New York City, I work for the New York Roadrunners, um a running organization that uh, puts on the New York City Marathon among many other events in the city um, and they they, ha- they have a small program for kids with disabilities uh, and I, I step in, stepped into that role to manage the wheelchair training program for, for kids with physical disabilities and um, it was um, some of the, the most fun I've, I've had in a long time being able to not be an athlete but to be a coach to some younger uh, younger kids who who um, if they so choose, would be Paralympic athletes in the near future. So uh, just a cool experience being able to to coach and be on the other side of of uh, the athlete coach uh, relationship. Um, but then in March of last year, COVID hit, and uh, uh, the one day, you know, you know, we were working in the office, and then the next day, we were working from home. And we, I worked from I worked from my apartment in Williamsburg, Williamsburg in Brooklyn, for about four months. And uh, you know, being in New York City during a global pandemic was uh, was very eerie. You know, it was one of those things where. You know, I went out maybe once, once a week to go to the grocery store. And when I got to the grocery store, there was a line outside and it just, just these type of things. You just don't, you just don't expect, you're not, you're not, you're not ready for them. Uh, But I will say one of the coolest parts about being in New York city during the global pandemic was every day at 7. PM, everybody would go out to their balconies or windows and just clap and cheer. Uh, and, and and they were doing it to thank the, the the frontline workers the people who still had to work to and, and ensure that we were able to get what we needed as civilians and it's just one of those things where it, it, we really felt like we were all connected even in a big city like new york city um, and right around the same time i believe it was in um in april or, or may of 2020 they announced that that Paralympic and Olympic games were going to be postponed one year. Now that's, this never happens. This is, this, this, the Paralympics and Olympics are set in stone once every two years, summer games, once every four years. And, and there's, there's, there's no, there's no adjusting the schedule. Everybody knows when it is, you know, maybe it's in early August or early September, but it's always the same time of year. And for, for that news to come out, um, right away in my mind, I thought, well, shoot, maybe, maybe I could, I can jump back in the pool and, and, uh, and give it a go. You know what, you know, at, at the point at this point last year, um, I wasn't really, uh, thinking about swimming. I wasn't thinking about the Paralympics. I was ready to be watching the Paralympics from my couch. <laughs> and, you know, I thought about it a lot, during, during that, during that whole year of, in 2019, that's when I really decided that I wasn't going to make, going to go, try to go for Tokyo. And, you know, that whole time, there's always that little voice in my head that was like, man, are you going to be okay with this? You know, you're going to be okay watching, you know, watching a swim, your main event, and and knowing that you could have medaled in that, or, you know, you could have done really well. Uh, I think I would have struggled with that. So, my ultimate decision came when I was in my apartment and I decided that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. You know, like I'm young, but I'm not that young. I'm 32 years old now. Um, I've I've been to the last four games. I have a lot of experience. I know my events. I know how to train. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go. Um, But that, that was, that was the easy part of saying I was, I wanted to make it happen. The hard part came the next day, when I didn't have a pool to swim in, there's no pools in New York City that you can swim in uh, during a global pandemic. So I did what I what I what I thought would put me on the right track, and I would go I would go for a run every day. I would go for a run. Now my runs, I started doing them around ten and eleven o'clock at night when there was no one out in the streets. Um, I was able to run without a mask on in the streets and you know i was i was very safe uh, i had nobody around me and you know i, I built up a nice a nice uh, a nice base to start with um and a few weeks later i i drove from new york to california and you know my initial plan was you know if i want to make this work uh, I, I need to get out to colorado i need to get to colorado and and hopefully um earn a spot to train at the Olympic training Center you know for me the Olympic training center has been my 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 go-to for all my training out of all my games you know uh, Athens Beijing London and Rio I spent two two and a half years here in the springs at the Olympic training Center focusing on my sport and my craft and it worked out great I was able to be very successful uh, and I recognized that from the start that if I was going to get to Tokyo, I'm going to need to put myself in the best position. Um, and, and so when I got out to California, this was back in July of 2020, um, I realized that it was going to be a lot more challenging to get into the training center because I, I haven't swam in three years. I, I haven't proved myself. And, you know, I was I was a little disappointed that, you know, I, I, they weren't going to work with me to, to, you know, train at the facility with the, the, the resident team. Uh, But with COVID and and everything, it it made it really challenging. And so um, when I was in California, I actually uh, started going to the ocean. And that that was my first time in the water. wasn't in a pool um, and I wasn't swimming. It was actually surfing. So I would go to, I would drive to the ocean, uh, maybe four or five days a week. Uh, and I'm only about an hour away, uh, from Newport beach where I usually go. And I would, I would literally just surf uh, about two hours a session. Um, and, and that, and that kind of got me back in the water. Uh, and it had, it, it made, it made it fun for me. Uh, but still I was lacking a pool. I could not find a pool even in Southern California. And, um, you know, it was a very, uh, a cool thing. I got a message in my Instagram from the manager of David Duchovny, who everybody knows is on the X-Files, you know, super, super famous guy. Um, and essentially David heard that I was, I was searching for a pool and, and David just, uh, built a new house out in Malibu and he built a nice 25 yard pool for himself, a single lane, 25 yard pool. And essentially he invited me to come out and and use the pool as ever as much as i wanted um and the cool part about this is that i actually met david Back in 1998 at the Malibu Triathlon, and you know I have a photo of me, me and him, and you know I'm standing there. I think I'm like eight years old, and he he just got done with the Malibu Triathlon, and he was much younger at the time as well. And um, we got a photo that was cool, and it's just it's to me it was crazy that more than 20 years later um, he 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 would reach out to me to offer me to train at his pool. So uh, from from uh, August to November. I would drive from Riverside, California to Malibu, California, which is about without traffic an hour and 20 minutes with traffic, uh, three hours, one way, no joke. And so I, I, I figured out that I needed to train, you know, not during rush hour because it is just unbearable getting down that practice at five o'clock uh, in Malibu and having to drive three hours, probably going 10 miles an hour the whole time because of traffic in LA. Uh, it was just undoable. So I started, you know, switching my schedule up and, and getting there a little earlier, being able to leave earlier. And, um, it was one of those things where I would text text, text Mr. David and be like, hey, uh, does this time work? And he'd be like, yeah, sure. And, and I would go and he would give you know give me the gate code to his house and I would go in and um, I'd go right to the pool and set myself up and my little speaker with my clock. And essentially I, I went to work, but I didn't, I wasn't grinding, you know, because I realized that jumping back into the pool after three years of not being in a pool, um, it could, it, it could, it could be a, a recipe for an injury and I had no time for injuries. I, I had no time to, to get hurt or, or any of that stuff. So really the first two months of in, being in the pool, I just, I just swam and swam and swam and just kind of mentally got back into it. And the time came in, in, in October where I needed to get to Colorado. So I drove out to Colorado and uh, I've been here since and, and essentially I've been training a, a lifetime fitness uh, nearby and uh, doing my gym at uh, a nearby a gym uh, with my buddy who's an Olympic weightlifter. Uh, so I'm in good hands with, my, with my, my strength. And then, you know, I'm doing a lot of cardio as well, running, doing a lot of hiking, um, really any, any and everything to stay in shape. Um, you know so that you know that's that's kind of where I am now uh it's been it's been challenging you know getting back into it but um you know if it, if it wasn't for COVID I I would still be in New York right now so um you know it's 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 almost like a double-edged sword you know because because of COVID I'm here in Colorado training for Tokyo uh but because of COVID there might be a possibility that not because of my performance, but because of classification, I won't be able to make the Tokyo team. Um, so, you know, all in all, I, I can't listen too much to the noise. I'm just going to continue to train and do what I got to do and, and, and essentially focus on what, what I can control.
0: So that's that's kind of where we're at now, Chris. Well, this has been a wild ride. I mean, you, you're talking about, you took us in a short period of time from coaching in New York. and And the question with that is, what were you doing? Were you fit while you were coaching? Were you, were you working out? Cause you made the decision to go back in, into training for the Paralympics, but you know, what kind of a base? And then, then you started running, then you started surfing, then you started hanging out with David Duchovny. Uh, so, it, so, I mean, they're, they're th- this is a crazy story to start off with Were you fit. I guess is the, is the first no. question. No, not at all.
1: I, when I was living and working in New York city, my fitness was going to work and coming home. Now, let me, let me, let me, get, let me, let me get you to understand New York city. You're taking a subway from, from Williamsburg, to, Brooke, to, to the Manhattan, and then in Manhattan, you got to do a change and you go up uh, midtown. Um, it's, it's you know, it, it used to take me about an hour, an hour and 30 minutes to get to work every day via subway. Um, and when you're in New York city, you have to deal with the stairs. And, what, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, after after a full day of, of getting to work and going to my other job and then going back home and then going back to work and all in one day, I mean, I was walking like five or 10 miles a day. So essentially my, my, my workout was just my everyday routine. Now, as we all know, that's not necessarily a athletic routine. So in essence, I started from nothing. I had no base whatsoever. I wasn't in in 20, in 2020, I I never touched a pool until I decided to, to, to come back. And my first pool was David Duchovny's pool. And I think in, in, um, uh, in July and August or July or August that's when I got back into the pool so essentially 2019 I didn't do nothing I think I I did a, a few runs here and there maybe I swim once once or twice a month but I literally had no base whatsoever uh, and and to me that, that, that's the fun part you know that, that that was that was that's the journey to getting getting back to getting back into shape
0: well, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like you might want to talk to David Duchovny and see if if they want to do a movie on this cuz this sounds like a movie where you're <laughs> you're running in the middle of the night, then you're then you're out there surfing, you know, you're a California guy so this is this is the the non-traditional training. And how did how did uh, David's manager find out cuz you met him as a little kid. Yeah. So 20, what, 24 years ago or something? Yep,
1: like yeah. So, so around when I decided to come back to the Paralympics, um, the New York Times did an article uh, about me coming back out of retirement. So they said, you know, even though I never really retired, I was just, you know, essentially taking a break. But the New York Times read an, ran an article uh, about me driving from New York to California and not being able to find a pool and only having the ocean to train in. And and David happened to read this article. And at the time when David read this article, I don't think he realized that he met, he, I don't think he remembered meeting me all those years back. So when the manager reached out to me and said, you know, David Duchovny's has a pool, uh, and, and offers to, you know, let you train in it. I said, wow, David Duchovny here, here's a photo of us. And so I sent her the photo of us back in 1998. And she was just blown away. Like, wait a minute, this is crazy. And she sent that photo to David and, and he says that he remembers after seeing the photo. And, and I mean, when you see a guy with, with two prosthetic legs, uh, you know, at a race, it's, it's something that you're probably going to remember. You just need a little refresher. Uh, and, and so he, he, he essentially read that New York times article and, and just out of being a nice person just offered me the opportunity to train there without even remembering that we, we met, you know, all those years back. So that, that, to me, that tells you a lot about how, who mr david is you know
0: i would imagine so did you guys have any interaction this is the height of covid So, oh, yeah. are, are you just kind we, of entering and going to the pool or uh, we
1: I, I i we i mean we chatted every day you know I, I he was always mostly home working from home there and and um he, Every day we would always, you know, we'd have a small conversation, or he would be in his gym, which was right next to the pool, and he would be doing Pilates or stretching or or some type of activity, you know. And um he, he unfortunately he never wanted to swim with me and I always offer like David come on let's get in the pool and uh he would always say nah 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 I'm good but you know he actually uses that pool every day and he swims like two or three grand uh a practice so uh he's in very good shape and you know it was it was just you know we just became kind of cool cool friends you know it was just one of those things where you know I didn't go there to chat I didn't go there to um try to go into his house or anything I went there to swim. And I left. There was no, oh, let's hang out and have a barbecue. Or could I hang out in the sun? No, I'm going there I'm taking care of business and I'm out. And, and I think he respected that. And, and I think that's why I was able to continue to, to train with at his house. I think I trained there for uh, about two, two or three months. Uh, And, and even still today, um, you know, he, 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 um, he always, he always texts me, Hey, how's it going, Rudy? What's going on? Uh, So, you know, I always keep him updated on how everything's going and just, I'm just very grateful. And I let him know that, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his, you know, generosity. So uh, he's definitely turned into a pretty cool friend.
0: That's awesome. Now it's, you were, it's not a traditional path that you've taken to the games. And then this past was it this past weekend or the weekend prior where you had to do you had to get, do a qualifying time right? What did you yep. have to do to run a qualifying time or to swim a qualifying time in order to get close? I mean, is, is it for the trials? It's not for the trials yet. It's not for is the it? trials.
1: It's for uh, essentially it's like nationals. I would say um, it's it's a it's a world. Para swimming um, uh, stop. You know, Paralympic swimming now has a World uh, Series where there's a, a competition in in another country every so few weeks, uh, kind of similar to like the Diamond League. And uh, and so you know, essentially this this competition uh, next weekend in, in Texas um, is is just a way to to you know show people that hey, I'm here. You know, guys, like I'm 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 back i'm swimming fast and and i have i have my goals in mind and um you know i found out um you know when i went to go sign up for this competition i realized that i I haven't competed in the last three years and you need to have a a qualifying time uh in the last two years to be able to attend the competition next weekend um so essentially i I was on a deadline Uh, i found out about um I found out about two weeks, uh, three weeks ago that I wasn't going to be able to go there because I don't have a time. So essentially I was on a, uh, a search to try to figure something out. Where can I find a 50 meter pool that was USA swimming, uh, certified? Uh, well, there's not many out there. It's definitely nothing in Colorado, nothing in California, uh, thankfully in Indiana and in Indianapolis, uh, they had a speedo-sectional swim meet for some of the fastest uh, age group uh, swimmers in, in Indiana. And uh, thankfully, um, I was able to re- reach out to, uh, to uh, Mrs. Thomas from USA Swimming, and she was able to uh, reach out to the meet director, Arlene, uh, who, who very graciously allowed me to jump into uh, the 200 IM on, on the last day to swim just the prelims session, just so I can get a time. And um, so essentially I had to drive 17 hours uh, to jump in the pool, to swim two minutes and 40 seconds, and then go back in the car to come back to Colorado Springs to continue my training. Um, so it was, it was a little, little frustrating because the qualifying time that I needed was about a minute and a half slower than my best time. So I essentially could have swam this with my eyes closed in the dark, right when I woke up, whatever, whatever. I could have swam this, even if I was in the worst shape of my life, I still could have made this qualifying time. Uh, so I was a little, a little disappointed that you know they weren't able to you know offer me the chance to just do a virtual swim, you know, record myself swimming. You know, it's the same thing; nothing's changing. The pool is the same length, uh, but they were they were pretty pretty stiff on the rules, uh, and they didn't make too many considerations. Now they did make a consideration to allow me to compete at next. Uh, week's Paralympic meet um, because you know the 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 entry deadline was way way past so they did give me the discretion to compete next weekend Uh, so you know it's it's uh, you know at the end of the day I I would have driven to Florida if I had if there was a meet down there that they know they were going to allow me to swim now the reason why I had to drive is because the University of Indiana wasn't allowing athletes to fly in because of COVID and if they did fly in, they would have to do a two-week quarantine. Well, I found out on on uh, the, the Wednesday that I was going to be able to swim on Sunday. So essentially, it was just like, uh, okay, I'm good. All right, let's go. And dri- drove out there, came back. Um,
0: it was and, just and, one yeah, day. Did you, drive I did it in in,
1: I did it in, in, uh, in two days. I think I did it in two days. So still, you know, you're, you you do not feel the best when you've been driving 17 hours and you have to jump into the pool, but you know, it didn't matter. I was going to do what I had to do to get that qualifying time. So I can go to the next week's Par- uh, Paralympic Nat world nationals and, and make a statement, and let, let people know that I'm here. I'm focused. I'm hungry. Uh, and, and I want to, I want to make my fifth Paralympic
0: team. What's the process now? So you go to this meet to the nationals effectively this weekend, and and you're swimming pretty fast. Is that right? It sounds like you are.
1: You know, my my time in Indianapolis uh, did put me on the national team. Um, It it put me on a low tier of the national team, but it still it still put me on the national team. And um, you know, it's 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 is you know my performance was definitely nowhere near my best, but in consideration of having to drive 17 hours and not really tapering for this competition, uh, I felt that it was a solid time. And and again, I, I, I wasn't expecting to, to go PR or anything. Again, all I needed to do was just to qualify in this one event. Um, so yeah. Wow.
0: So, so then you have the Nationals this weekend and yep. then are the trials in June?
1: Yes. So nationals, uh, or world series nationals, whatever you want to call it, the Paralympic meet next month in Texas, uh, next week in Texas. And then the next step is going to be trials in June. Um, you know, and, and it, you know, I'm in, I'm in a challenging situation, um, because of COVID, um, you know, I wasn't able to, to travel last year to, to get a, to get a standard or a qualifying time. Uh, and so my first competition essentially was Indiana. And, you know, because I, I, I was so late in the game, um, you know, Paralympic swimming is, is doing a lot of changes and they've changed a lot of the classification uh, back in 2017 um, because there's, there's, there's been so much, problems with classification in paralympic swimming uh it's 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 ridiculous you know you have athletes who are misrepresenting their disability so you'll have an athlete who has a, a has a neural issue and 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 when they go in for the classification they won't take their medicine that day so it makes it look like their, their 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 disability is much worse than it is and then on race day they're you know 100% kicking with two legs and two arms working perfectly fine and and that plagued the paralympics and it started in london in 2012 and and from 2012 to 2016 it just got out of hand and you had athletes and classifications that shouldn't be there you had athletes who got reclassified and just by off of a reclassification they went from being 20th in the world to being a world record holder just off of a, a change you know and 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 i think I think Paralympics, they just got so much uh, negative feedback from that, that they decided to, to just reclassify everybody. Now this was back in 2017. And again, I'm so late into the game. Um, It's, it's looking like at this moment, it's looking like that I'm not going to be able to get reclassified before Tokyo. Um, And it's looking like I might miss the Paralympic team, not because of my performance, but because of classification um and it's 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 a little challenging a little discouraging but you know chris at the end of the day i can only focus on what i can do and that's my performance and that's my
0: attitude and that's my training um so could you but it will be very difficult disappo- could
1: Excuse you be
0: in a different class how, how does it because i mean you're you got your legs amputated as a little kid sure. nothing's changed. Nothing. Right, So could you be in a different class? Have they reconfigured the classes so that you so that you might be in a different class than you than you'd competed in for the last four Paralympic Games?
1: Absolutely and that, and, and this this is the, the kicker of the whole thing. you know, my disability has not changed since I've had my legs amputated. Now I got classified and this was a permanent classification back in 1997 or 1998. back when I, when I first started swimming, and that's been my classification my whole career. Um, now with this reclassification going on, I've been told that my class will change, and my main event, which has been the two hundred individual medley, which is how I what I know how I know what I know is that race. And well, tell people what the
0: two hundred IM is, though. So sure, two hundred
1: IM is a fifty of each stroke. So you swim butterfly, backstroke breaststroke and freestyle so it's a little bit of everything you got to be good at it all and you got to have that endurance because it's not really a sprint Mm -hmm. um so essentially they're telling me that i will no longer be competitive in in my main events and i will have to focus on the 100 breaststroke because my classification will go down in the breaststroke but it will go up in the individual that i am uh, so it's very, very interesting. Uh, but I'm okay with that. My, my breaststroke, I'm, I'm a very solid breaststroker. I'm, I'm the current American record holder in the breaststroke. Um, I feel very confident that if I'm able to perform at my best, I can be, I can be on the podium in Tokyo in that hundred breaststroke. Uh, but unfortunately it's, it's not, it's not my call. My performance won't dictate anything. And that's to me, that's the hard, a hard part to swallow. You know, I was always content of you know if i don't make tokyo because of my performance i can i can live with that i know that i went and i did everything i could and it just wasn't enough okay i i'm okay with that but this whole thing of not being able to go to the paralympics because i'm not classified it's uh it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a challenge but you know chris i'm i'm staying positive If for some reason Tokyo doesn't work out, I'm not going nowhere. I'm, I'm focusing on 2022 world championships and 2024 Paralympics in Paris.
0: So what have you learned in your time off? Are you coming to the sport fresh and and obviously with your unorthodox, can I call it unorthodox training? Yep. Yep. What have you learned? That's different. What have I learned? Perspective.
1: Um, you know, what have I learned? is it's, it's a, it's a process. You, you can't, you can't look at your, the bad days as, as your overall, you know, experience and, and, and just where you are, you know, one of the things that, that's, it's, uh, that I've learned in my training is that you have to stay patient, you know? And, and for me as a young athlete, grow, growing up, going to Athens and Beijing as a young guy, Patience was nowhere near me. I I was, I was unpatient. I, I wanted to get things done. I wanted to go, go, go. And, and, and through my training over the last year, I've realized that I need, need to, to, to be patient and take it one day at a time and not look at the bad days as an overall where I'm at, because, you know, those bad days, when you're, you get a little bit older and you start, you know, getting back into training, the bad days seem to be more than the good days sometimes. Um, so, you know, really just, just, just developing that sense of, you know, I will get to where I need to be, but I just need to be patient and I need to be smart. I think that's another thing that I've learned is I need to, you know, obviously my training has been a little unorthodox, like you mentioned, but I need to be smart because, I only have two shoulders. I don't have any knees. I don't have any legs. So I need to make sure that when I get out in the ocean and I'm surfing and I catch a wave, that I'm not going to tweak my arm. If I'm out hiking, I'm not going to fall and hurt myself or anything. So, you know, just being smart about what I was doing and, and more importantly, being smart in the water. And everybody knows, you know, when you develop an injury, it's because of, some technique issues that, you know, you're, you're not getting right. Your 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 elbow's dropping too low. You're entering too much with your your thumb, whatever it is, you know, uh, an injury is a real, real thing that could happen. And that to me, that was just something that I, I didn't have time for. So I just had to be smart with what I was doing. Um, but also put in the work and feel, feel confident that I was putting in the right work because at this point I'm training by myself. I don't have a coach right now. I'm doing everything on my own as my experience from the last 20 years. And I feel confident.
0: What's the, the passion part of it? I mean, you're coming back to this because you want to be here. You're saying is a, a brave heart is a powerful weapon. Yeah. What, what does that mean? And does that apply to what you're doing right now?
1: So absolutely. You know, I was,
0: I was content working and living in New
1: York City. I had a great job. I had I had great jobs. I had three or four jobs that I was working, coaching, uh, and everything. And and I and it was looking like to me, and for a moment there in New York City, it was looking like this was going to be it. It was looking like I was going to you know continue to 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 you know to do well in my job and hopefully get promoted and live in New York City. And and, and a little bit of, in, in a way that scared me a little bit. It scared me because I didn't want to settle. Um, and I realized that settling for me was going to be probably the end of my sporting career. And I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that, you know, sports has been my life since I, far as I can remember, uh, the, my passion for the pool and the water goes beyond just swimming. I mean, anything in the water I, I love. And, you know, I, it, to me, you know, I, 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 when I was, you know, in my apartment in New York and wondering if I should do this or not, at the end of the day, I said, why not? You know, like, I'm not going to be able to have this situation again. I'm not going to be able to, to replay this this year or anything. And, and I realized that, you know what, I am going to make this decision on my own. And to me, that was very, that was, that was a lot, of, to me, it was very liberating to say, this is what I'm going to do. And it came all from me. I didn't have any, any outside voices telling me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. This was just me and, and that felt great. And I, and I, and I loved that. So,
0: yeah. yeah. No, that's perfect. The coaching part is interesting, right? Because you've been you've been in the public eye yeah. since the time you were little, right? Since you were eight years old, this is when your relationship with the Challenge Athletes Foundation started. And you, you became, you know, their, their, their... The poster boy. I was, I was not going to say that, but, but you did say it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You became their yeah. poster boy, their featured athlete. Uh, you know, what, what does it mean to you to be a mentor?
1: You know, Chris, it's, it's been... I've been involved in the Challenge Athletes Foundation since I was 8 years old. Um and when I was 8 years old, I I just was just a deer caught in the headlights. I was just just amazed by the opportunities that that came to me through the Challenge Athletes Foundation uh through FlexFoot Oser uh the prosthetic company who supported me from day 1. Um I I was just just amazed that I was able to to run and ride a bike and swim and and go to all these races and go to San Diego and meet other people like me. So I, I never went into this uh, in the mindset of all right, I want to be an inspiration or I want to be a role model for I want to be a you know a, a mentor to the young younger kids like I, that was never my thought. And even when I became a little bit older in my twenties, I, I I somewhat always rejected the idea of me being a role model or a mentor uh, and that's something that people really didn't see because when I showed up to the CAF events it was always a smile and it was always positive but at the end of the day I did feel like I lost a little bit of my childhood um, being, in, being in the spotlight, being the poster boy Um, and, and, you know, when I was in high school, I used to wear pants every day. I used to wear my hoodie. Um, I, I just didn't want people to see me. I wanted to hide, you know, I just wasn't comfortable with who I was. Um, I was always wondering, you know, why me, why me, you know, that the the pity, you know, and it wasn't until I was probably in my, in my mid twenties that for some reason, it just, it just clicked on me that if I can motivate and inspire somebody that is awesome like like there's nothing better in the world than being able to motivate and inspire somebody and especially a young a young a young athlete who 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 is like me in a sense who's who has a physical challenge you know that to me there's nothing more powerful nothing more greater yeah medals are cool records are fun paralympic teams are great but it, when you're able to, to help a young, young child who's struggling with their, you know, self-image and when you're able to, to, to help a young person realize their full potential through sport, um, that that's the greatest reward. And, and now I firmly believe now I'm in this position, I'm 32 years old now that it's, it's my responsibility. It's a duty as a Paralympic athlete, as an Ironman finisher, as a CAS spokesman, to, to continue down the path that I'm living. Uh, because there are people out there who need to see what we do. And they need to see that life is going to be hard. There's going to be some challenging days. But you have to continue forward. You have to continue pushing towards those goals and those dreams of yours. And, and like I said, it's, it's one of the coolest things that I've been able to, to, to be a part of. Um, it's very humbling because, you know, you know, a lot of times when I'm out in my day, just at the store or at the gym, you know, people come up to me on a daily basis and they say, wow, that's, that's cool. You know, you've inspired me well, you know, you know, the story and, you know, I'm, I'm always very grateful at those situations because that, that's, that's powerful that, that, that's, that, that's going to carry on and that's going to help somebody else down the line. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, Chris, there's a lot of Paralympic athletes today who just cringe at the, at the word of inspiration and cringe when someone comes up to them and says, Oh, wow, that's so cool. That you're out." And I get that. There's nothing inspiring about going to the grocery store, you know, with two prosthetics or, or in a wheelchair, you know, that we're just living life. But if somebody can be inspired and motivated by that, then let it be. You know, that is an amazing thing. It's it is it costs it does nothing to you. It doesn't cost you anything. Now, if you have self-insecurities about your disability, then I can understand why you get mad about that person who's just trying to be positive and and in, in, in front of you, you know. So it, it's it's interesting because I used to be that person who would get mad or or you know, I would smile and say thank you, but it, in my mind, I'd be like, man, we do you
0: mean? I'm an inspiration. I'm just doing what I do. Leave me alone. But you got to see the other side of it as well. Well, also, you have the kids who are following behind you, right? How did you have to learn everything that you learned, right? The running, the swimming, those kinds of things. What kind of help can you give them?
1: Absolutely. You know, that's the biggest part to me. When I was growing up, I had never met somebody else who was like me until I met Roderick Sewell. Uh, and this was when I was 12 years old and Roger was probably eight or nine. Um, and you know, to be able to see somebody who looks like you, uh, is a game changer. You know, when I was growing up, I never could relate to Michael Jordan or, or any of the professional football or baseball players. Like i never, i never seen anything that, you know, obviously they work hard and they're good at what they do, but. I just never could relate to them. And it wasn't until I got around, you know, other challenge athletes that I, you know, I really started to feel comfortable. But the big part is when I was growing up, I had nobody to look, look, look to, to ask questions, to, to figure a way to do things. I essentially had to figure it all out by myself. And from, from swimming to skateboarding, to surfing, to riding a bike, uh, to running, it was all just trial and error figuring out how can i get just a little bit faster a little bit faster and 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 that to me is is where i'm able to pass that knowledge along to these younger kids who are growing up now in front of our eyes kind of like how i grew up in front of your eyes and and really watch them watch them blossom into whatever they choose to do whether it's ac- academics whether it's sports being able knowing that you played a small part in that child's development is is very rewarding that that's that's the best thing ever and you know these kids that are growing up now they're going to be breaking all of our records they're going to be winning the next gold medals so to be able to help those guys out to me that's it's a responsibility
0: it's a responsibility and the thing is you can make their lives that much easier right (laughs) i mean you're talking about they're going to break your records and they're going to break your records based partially on the experience that you had yep what was the, what was the limelight part of it? Cause you were thrust into the limelight as, as an eight-year-old, right? Because the Challenge Athletes Foundation, the big fundraiser is the triathlon and yep. you were teamed with Robin Williams, right? Yeah. Yep. What was that like? And to being one in the, in the limelight, but two, what did you teach him? Cause I'm sure he told you stuff that you taught him.
1: Absolutely. You know, you know, that it's, it's, uh, you know, thinking back on those days, you know, the first San Diego triathlon challenges and being able to be partnered with Robin Williams, the Robin Williams. I mean, this is the guy that I've watched all of my favorite movies from Mrs. Doubtfire to Flubber to all, like all of Jumanji. I mean, these, these, this guy was, he was awesome. He was so funny. He was so just Robin Williams and I first met Robin back at the Malibu triathlon. I think the same year I met David Duchovny um, and, and Mr. Robin did the the Malibu triathlon. I think he did the bike park and I was able to to meet him and, and say hi to him. And then I found out the next year that he was going to be coming to the, the challenge athlete triathlon and he was going to be on my team and he was going to be riding the bike for, for, for my, for me. And, you know, so you'd it, swim,
0: he'd he'd bike, and then you had somebody else who ran. So it was a team. Not chapter.
1: somebody else. We had Scott Tenley, who is okay. Ironman World Champion, all around awesome dude. Scott Tenley, he, he did the run. So we we were called Team Braveheart. And you know, the first year, um, first year, it was just so overwhelming being able to 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 just chat with Mister Robin. And it is funny that you know. When people think of you know a little eight, nine-year-old kid who's missing his legs and they think of Robin Williams, you're going to think, well, what, do you, what can you possibly have in common with a big-time movie star? Probably one of the biggest movie stars in the world. But as soon as we sat down and started chatting, we came to a conclusion that we both love playing video games. And this is Robin Williams. And he knew every game that was out. He knew every system that was out. And he knew every game that was coming out, and we literally sat sat in a room just talking about video games for probably thirty minutes. And then, you know, he was very interested in my legs too, and I would always take my leg off and let him hold it. And he would be making crazy jokes that at the time I didn't understand, but I'm sure now if I could if I can hear them, I'm sure they're just hilarious. But that that was that was our. That was I really didn't have too much time to spend with them because the media were all over the people were all over they wanted the autographs they wanted the picture with them uh, so I, I really the first year I was able to spend just a little time with them uh, after the race and then you know this continued and this continued for 10 years in a row and that to me was I mean that I mean how lucky of a kid am I to be able to to become friends with Robin Williams and to do races with Robin Williams, and um, you know, it just felt, it just, I just felt like the luckiest kid in the world. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, just couldn't, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really believe it at the time. And even now, when I, when I'm 32 years old now, and I think back, I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. I got to do this race with with Robin Williams, and you know, I was like, we got a little bit older, and I went to my first Paralympic Games in 2004. Um, And in 2005 and six, I think was around the last time that he was able to, um, to come come do the race. Um, I remember one time when we sat in the room um, there at the beach house. And, and I can tell that he was, he was a little tired of the media. He was a little tired of the pictures and the photos. And when he went back into this back room to sit at table, you can tell that he just wanted to just relax and and not have to smile and do all this. And I remember him leaning over to me and saying, saying, Rudy, this is like, that's all, that's all just noise. You know, like what counts is what's inside is, is your soul don't sell your soul out. And and I remember him telling me this. And at the time I didn't really remember, uh, I didn't really comprehend what he was trying to tell me. But I think at the end of the day, he was trying to say, don't get caught up in the lights and cameras and stuff like that's all cool and everything. But at the end of the day, what counts is who you are as a person and how you treat people on an er everyday basis. And whether it's the janitor or the CEO, it's, 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 it's the consistency of just being a good person. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways I took from from Robin is that he took the time to shake hands, take pictures with everybody. And, and he treated everybody the same. He treated every, the waiter, he treat everybody with respect and just gratefulness. And, and I, I remember that still to this day. Um, And, you know, I've, I've, I've kept in great contact with family, uh, Cody, uh, Robin's son. I I went to, went to his wedding uh, a few years ago. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things where we, we stay connected and, you know, we're just longtime friends, but, um, yeah, that, that to me was, uh, on, on real time, I would say.
0: Did he follow your career? Did you hear from him? Like when you went to your first games and
1: I heard, it's so funny. I heard from him like periodically, At random times. And I remember one time I was up in Portland doing a race and I went on this TV show, like a live TV show, and they were like, oh, wait a minute, we have a a special caller calling in. And he actually called in, but he was using his like Mrs. Doubtfire voice. And he was just saying all these things. And I was like, wait, who's that? And then finally he broke his voice and was like, it's me, Rudy. I just wanted to call and say, uh, we're proud of you and keep doing what you're doing. And, and, and of course he would continue to send me video games. And that was the coolest thing I think as a young kid that you can ever experience. You know, when we had these long chats about video games at the end of them, I remember him saying, all right, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you some games And in my back of my mind, I'm like, all right, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, he's going to forget about it and it's not going to happen. But I I swear, three weeks later, I got home from school. I think I was in like sixth or seventh grade. And I I got home to this big old box and it was heavy. And it didn't say who it was from. It just had my name on there. And I remember opening it up and it was literally a box full of computer games, a brand new PlayStation, the first one that ever came out and it just had it was it was like a like i don't know it was it was like winning the lottery almost as a young kid you know i grew up in the trailer i grew up very very um humble means and i I never my parents could never afford a playstation on computer games and this box literally had like 20 video games with the system with two or three controllers and i mean talking about the luckiest kid in the world, that was me there. And and this continued throughout the years. And so uh, it's funny, Bob Bevin always says that Robin Williams was my video game pimp. So he would always just send me the games and, and I would just play them all. And, and that, that to me was, I mean, he just made me the luckiest kid in the world.
0: But it's also interesting too. I mean, one of the things that he did for Challenge Athletes Foundation for you and also for the Paralympics was was lending his star power, right? Coming and joining this and making it a much bigger event as a result of, of his star power. We saw some of that with one of your one of your teammates in the Super Bowl this past yep. year, right? So Jessica Long, you and Jessica are the two who have competed the longest, right? So four yes. Paralympic games for for swimmers. What did you know? that that was happening like when the super bowl was happening did you know that she was going to have a commercial had you heard about it i had no
1: idea that that jessica long was included she had her own commercial in a super bowl i mean this is like you can't get no grander than that and i i i know me and jessica were were on the the 2004 team as the youngest male and female and you know i have been great friends with jessica our whole careers and to see her be in a Super Bowl commercial, um, it's just amazing. You know, just very, very proud, but also just, just excited for what's to come next. And and to see that a Paralympic athlete who's been so successful, and to be able to continue to be successful, and then to be able to get a Super Bowl commercial. I mean, that's it's great for Paralympic sport. Uh, obviously, it's great for her. But to me, that's just the beginning. We're, we're making small gains in this, in this Paralympic world. And that was a major gain, I would say.
0: It, it was a major gain, right? Because, I mean, people watch, a lot of people watch the Super Bowl for the commercials, Absolutely. right? Yep. I mean, a lot of people watch it for the game, but then there are those people who watch it just for the commercials. And she happened to have that kind of a commercial, which the Paralympics now has, has considerably more publicity and coverage than it ever did like back when I was competing and, and when you first started even in 2004, it was it was minimal and what it was 2012 that I think it was still three hours of coverage
1: yeah yeah I, I remember Chris back in 2004 they used to tell us they used to tell us that US Paralympics they used to say the media people they would say oh Paralympic athletes are not marketable no, no one can relate to a disabled guy. You know, and, that, and that, was the, that was the attitude around disability and disability sports was, oh, people don't want to see you. Like, what do you mean, what do you mean? Like there's no, and now, I mean, it, yeah, we're still not where we, sh- where, where, where we should be. We're not where the Olympic level is, but I mean, you know, to be honest, what a, a way that put Paralympics on the map is Oscar Pistorius back in 2012 before the unfortunate events that happened. But with Oscar being a double below the amputee and fighting for the right to be able to compete in the able body Olympics and having to prove that his legs were not an unfair advantage, I think that that reached more people than any other story in the Paralympic history. And by him going to the Olympics and running in the semifinals, um, it, it just brought a whole new world to the Paralympic to Paralympics. Now, unfortunately, that didn't last long. Um, we all know we all know what happened, and so in my mind, it put Paralympics a little bit far, a little bit back, kind of pushed us back a little bit. Um, but that's that's the reality of, of, of 2012. It was it was a big. It was the story of the games, and that's you know to me, yeah, it
0: was. And and what's interesting about what Oscar did is it brought a question that that seems like an absurd question right can your disability be an advantage with regard to able-bodied athletes sure sure as a paralympic athlete for me i looked at that and i said you know what that's a victory for us just in that anybody's asking this question
1: absolutely absolutely you know that was and even still today, that question is now like more at, asked more than ever. Now there's all oh, these guys with two blades or these guys with a, a guy with a blade. Oh, of course he has an advantage. His legs don't get tired or, you know, it, it, there's just the argument continues on. But at the end of the day, Chris, you cannot replace a human part of the body with whatever, whatever technology that's out. It's not going to be able to replace that no matter what. So as you said that that's a victory being having people being like wait a minute that nah nah that's unfair he's going too fast because of his legs of course to me that is that's that's what we want to see you know because that creates you know awareness and it creates it creates that that controversy and people love controversy you know and 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 i think that you know as we continue forward you know, and a very interesting story that everybody should be watching is Blake Leeper, who has been fighting to go to the Olympic Games as the first American. Now, let me remind you, Blake Leeper ran a 44-4 in 2019, which would have put him on every Olympic team in history. 44-4, 400
0: meter, right.
1: Yep, for 400 meter, yes, sir. So as soon as that came out, as soon as he ran that, that race and went a 44-4 in the 400 meter everybody said no 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 way no way the guy has an unfair advantage no one ever took the time to look at the story of where blake came from where he went and where he's going and you will fight you will understand that the man is a hard worker Unlike anybody else, and the man is a natural talent. And unfortunately, he's been trying to go. He tried to go to Tokyo Olympics, but they denied him. Unfortunately, uh, so I think. But I think it, the story's not over. I think we're we're going to see some amazing things in the near future.
0: Can Can you describe Blake and and his disability? How he runs for for the people who are listening? Absolutely. To-
1: so Blake is a double
0: below knee below knee amputee.
1: So he's He's a T-44, uh, T-43 maybe, and he essentially is, is um, a very fast uh, American track athlete. You know, he's, He won, a, I think, a silver medal in the 400 in London behind Oscar Pistorius, and uh, he went through some, some challenging times around Rio, but he was able to fight through those challenging times, and now he's in the best shape of his life, and like I said- People need to be watching because this man is going to be making history in the Paralympic world, and we hope for in the Olympic world as well.
0: Right, and it's and it's a great it's a great conversation. It's a great question for people, and and we've got Hunter as well, who's doing who's running
1: amazing things,
0: absolutely amazing things, running in the NCA's uh, as a double amputee as well, and and so that that to me is is representative of these steps that we're taking. How much Absolutely. pride do you take as as being part of that movement? I mean, you got you got super animated when you were talking about Blake. How much how much pride do you have because you are a Paralympian? And, and granted, you're not doing the same things that he's doing, but as as a member of the community, what does that mean to you? You know, I'm I'm
1: only playing a little part in something big, and that's that's the that's it right there. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that I did this and I'm that and that no no, no we all know that this is a, a team effort. this is a effort of every Paralympic athlete and every disabled athlete. This has been a, an effort from the Challenge Athletes Foundation since day one. This is this is a, a, a team effort and so you know it's 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 amazing to see the progress. you know I remember when I back in 2006, when I first started getting paid by the national team, I would be getting $500 every three months. And that was our stipend. That was what we earned. And we were so proud of that. And, and now you, you look at the national team stipend and it's, you know, in the thousands of dollars monthly, not only that, the most exciting part that I think that that is just awesome is recently they announced that, a Paralympic athlete is going now is now going to receive the same amount of medal bonus as an Olympic athlete. And, and to me, that is, that is a victory across the board. Um, it's, it's setting a new standard in Paralympic sport in the United States, because once money's involved,
0: you know how that goes. What do you know what those standards are? What the figures are like, what a gold medal 37,000 for a gold. And
1: Now, Chris, I think that uh, they should go back and do some retro uh, payments, don't you think?
0: I think that sounds like, it sounds like a retirement package, really. That Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it would be perfect. Now, we're talking about sport on the high level, and we're talking about victory schedules and things like that, but it seems like sport for you has a more pure kind of essence as well. What has, what has sport meant for you? What does it mean in your life?
1: Sports to me has is it's a way of life. There's no way around it. It's it's a way of life, it's a lifestyle. It's it's what keeps me excited when I wake up in the morning and get out of bed. It's what keeps me dreamy when I go to bed on on what the potential is. And you know, being a disabled, a disabled person in, in in the in the world, we often are presented with obstacles. We're presented with the things that we can't do. We're presented with the things that people don't think we should do. And and unfortunately, that is put in our face a lot. And to be able to break that barrier and say, you know what? It's okay to be different. I am proud of who I am. Yeah, I'm missing my legs, but I can still go out there and kick your butt uh, and, and don't expect any mercy you know what i mean that to me sports is giving me that drive to prove to myself that i can do whatever i want if it's an ironman let's go if it's the paralympics let's go that to me it's it's given me the the resilience it's given me the motivation and it's given me the joy of just being happy like, i i absolutely love doing sports and i don't th- i don't think i'm ever going to stop i mean when i stop is going to be when i'm not fast enough now who knows what that will be but i'm i i want to if i'm blessed enough to continue down the sports i want to continue to do it because it's to me it's it's a way of life it's it's a way for me to reach people around the world um it's a way for for me to 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 show a young person in in, in africa or in asia that they don't have to beg. They don't have to, you know, live live a second class as a second class citizen. They can become whoever they wanna be. You know, if you look at the, in the world, the disabled population is the biggest minority in the world. And we are the biggest group of people who unfortunately are looked down upon. I mean, if you go to Africa or any other countries and you're disabled, I mean, if you were born disabled in an Afri- African country, they're going to take you out in the bush and leave you there. And that is still happening today. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just I just feel very blessed to be where I'm at, to be, you know, a Paralympic athlete in the United States. But I also find that it's a duty to try to help my, my brothers and sisters around the world, because, you know, these guys, I mean, I went to Ethiopia, Ethiopia last year. And I I I I met some kids who who were double amputees like me. And these guys were using croc sandals, crocs as their prosthetics. That's what they had. They would they would walk on their knees in the dirt and mud and streets of, of Ethiopia to go to school. And and they would they would come back and you know it just it wouldn't know any different. But You know, seeing seeing what we have here in the States, you only feel a little bit guilty and realize that, man, you are blessed. But just because you're blessed doesn't mean you should just be blessed. You should use that blessing to help other people. Um, So, you know, I'm very limited in what I can do for these people right now, but – you know, I really I really hope that when I get a little older and distinguished, I'm, I can able to reach out and, and really help more people. I mean, the Challenge Athletes Foundation has just done an amazing job at reaching challenge athletes around the world. I mean, it's it's and that's to me is if we can get a prosthetic leg or a, a racing wheelchair to somebody in Africa or Asia and they can go out and make a Paralympic team. I mean, you're changing, changing lives there. And that is powerful.
0: You said that for you, because it's also a personal journey too, right? That that early on, you had difficulty with the inspirational tag. Oh yeah. Was there a moment when you got to the point where you said, you know what, I can take pride in myself. I can take pride in who I am, in my body. What was there? Was there a moment that that happened?
1: Not a pinpoint moment that I remember, but I do, I, I do remember, you know, after, after in, in in Athens in 2004, after winning my first gold medal, um, to me, that was a very defining moment because it made me realize that if I set goals in my life, five, 10, 15 years down the road, and I work towards these goals on a daily basis that I, I could do it. And with that mindset, um, you know, really, really helped me overcome my personal challenges of just being insecure of, of who I was as a person and, you know, really being, you know, in the spotlight, obviously a lot of times it made me feel a little bit more comfortable with who I was, but I never, I never liked to watch myself on TV or read anything about, it. I never, I never, I, I just didn't like to, to do, to do that. Probably, probably because I was, you know, just insecure about myself. And when I would watch myself, I would always say, wow, why would I say that? Or why am I walking like that? Or why do I look like that? You know, and and that, that to me was, was uh, not, not a, not a, not a positive way to be looking at life, especially yourself. And, you know, I think when I was able to accomplish finishing my first Ironman, it, it really changed a lot of things for me because it, it just gave me that mental toughness of knowing that. If I continue to do what I, what I believe I can do, you know, it could happen. And, and to be able to finish an Ironman 16 hours and six minutes, um, it really gives you a great perspective on when you think you're having a bad day or when you think your day is hard or when you think your two hour workout is challenging. You know, I, I, I say go out there. And go out there by yourself in an Ironman and do it. And do an Ironman, and you will you will find something about yourself that you just can't deny. And, and when I did my Ironman, I realized that I had so much more potential in me. You know, when I was in my Ironman and I was about fourteen hours in, I actually stopped and laid on the ground. And this was probably at nine o'clock at night. And I, and just looking at the stars, mentally and physically, I was I was done. But I got up and I ran the last six miles of that Ironman at like nine minute pace. And that right there just showed me that like, when you think you're done, you got so much more. And that's a powerful thing that I think everybody needs to learn because there's a lot of excuses out there. There's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't and, and, you know, you know, it can't and all that. And, you know, once you're able to cross that mental barrier that we all have, A whole new world opens up.
0: You've talked a lot about sport. You've talked a lot about Paralympic sport. You've talked a lot about your journey. You've not mentioned what I read was your favorite Paralympic sport. What's your favorite Paralympic sport?
1: Oh, I love wheelchair rugby.
0: (laughs) Why Uh, why is wheelchair rugby your favorite sport? And Uh, describe the sport if you can, too, please.
1: (laughs) I wish I could do wheelchair rugby I would be out there but I, I got my hands so I can't but uh, man wheelchair rugby real wheelchair, wheelchair rugby to me is just one of the bad bad-ass, badass sports out there it's plain and simple you got guys who are who, who have a, a very high spinal cord injury who, or who are quads who are missing arms and legs and they're out there in a wheelchair and they're going head on to each other and knocking each other out of the wheelchair I mean, that to me is, that's the coolest thing that that you could ask for. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. I have a lot of respect for the wheelchair rugby guys. I think they, they are awesome. And, you know, especially Team USA, we've done pretty good but I know we have a good rivalry with uh, Canada and Australia. But uh, yeah, any chance I get to, to watch a, a nice wheelchair rugby match, I am there.
0: Awesome, well, Rudy, thanks for joining us. Good luck as you proceed toward Tokyo. We have our fingers crossed for you. We understand it's going to be a difficult journey, but that to you, you know, listening to your story, it doesn't sound like that's the kind of thing that's going to phase you.
1: Nah, the journey doesn't stop at Tokyo. We're we're continuing on. And, you know, as long as I can stay healthy and stay fit, we'll see, we'll see how long we can go.
0: (laughs) Right. So there might be Paris and there might be L.A., as well, which will be 2024 and 2028. So best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Good luck this coming weekend. I, I'd imagine we're gonna turn some heads this weekend. That'll be fun.
1: I hope so. Thank you very much, Chris, and best of luck to you. I'm sure we'll be chatting soon again.
0: Sounds good. Thanks, Rudy. Have a great one. Take care. You too. Bye.